Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. On this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you a talk from the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2011. This is the first of three on the life of Joseph and was given by David Kofi. We would love to invite you to a future Pastoral Refreshment Conference. You can find out more about the 2022 conferences on our website. Visit www.livingleadership.org forward slash PRC. Here's today's episode. John, thank you uh, very much, and friends. It's uh, good to be here, a real privilege to be uh, part of this conference. Um, good to renew old friendships and uh, to make new ones. Um, I love the notes. I don't think I've been to any conference where they give you notes that you can pass on to your church uh, to tell them how to pray for you, please. And uh, not too much. Uh, you, um, you gave me the theme, uh, which is uh, brilliant. I've never done a series in Joseph before. I think I had a single sermon on Joseph. Multiple ones on Abraham, Moses, and David. And uh, so it's been a great discipline to uh, settle down and do this. And I have to say, I have felt this conference uh, in the study. Uh, I don't know the majority of you. And uh, this is where there is that uh, wonderful... Uh, awesome ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby the Holy Spirit can put his finger uh, on things that are particular to you in your ministry, you in your life at the moment. And I think that is uh, the way God works as we open his word. Uh, when I arrived and was given my key, uh, the lady gave me my key and said, you're in the bridal suite. <laughs> um, my wife, we, we now live in Devon for 22 years. Uh, we lived in uh, Oxfordshire. Uh, John asked me to give you a brief overview. I was uh, ordained as a Baptist pastor in 1967 and served in three pastorates, one down the road here in Leicestershire, a village called Whetstone, then moved down to Cheen in Surrey, and then to uh, uh, Torquay. And then the Lord called us into a national ministry in 1988 and then into an international ministry uh, in the year 2005, which was a a five-year uh, appointment. We visited uh, over 80 countries uh, during that period of time. And it was with a great relief uh, that I was allowed to retire uh, last summer. And we moved back to Devon. And uh, from there, I had a particular heart for uh, these kind of gatherings, uh, for leadership, and especially the development of emerging uh, leaders. So uh, it's great to be here. On the way, because we left our grandchildren in Oxfordshire, uh, Grandma Janet, who I'm married to, had the difficult choice of did she come here or did she renew her friendship with her four wonderful grandchildren? Uh, she didn't pray about it a lot, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, uh, the grandchildren went out. Uh, I even phoned from here to say I've got the bridal suite. The grandchildren still won't. So uh, if you've got grandparents, you'll know that, that feeling. I was traveling uh, from Victoria Station. A few months ago, I was going down to Spurgeon's College to give lectures. It was early morning, 
And uh, I arrived at Victoria around about um, eight o'clock. And over the loudspeaker, there came the uh, sound of my wife's one of her favorite songs. Uh, so feeling romantic, I just, you know, texted her and said, they're playing uh, your song and I love you very much. And then in an act of romantic madness, just added to this, sent the text on. And imagine that I would get a text back immediately, that I got nothing, not a text, not a tweet, nothing. And later that day, I was traveling back after the lectures. I was on a train from Paddington uh, to Didcot, and I had a text. But it wasn't from my wife. <laughs> it was from a friend of mine called Steve. And uh, Steve said to me uh, in the text, was this text intended for me? <laughs> my message with two kisses had gone to my very good mate, who said I wanted to take our relationship to a deeper level. <laughs> Every time we open God's word, there is a message for our eyes only. Message isn't intended to go astray and with discipline. In other words, as we bring the focus of why we're here, why we've taken time out to be here, that message won't go astray. It'll come right open to your heart, and it'll come into the heart of your ministry. You've asked me to take three sessions on this. It's a classic human story. It's a riches to rags to greater riches story. It's a story of a man who had everything, who lost everything, and then gained more than he lost. It's a family story about a man who was born to a woman who had longed for a child. So that when eventually, after many children have been born, not to her, but into the wider family circle, Genesis 30, 23, she was able to say, God has taken away my reproach. This means the birth of Joseph was the end of the family shame. That is a heavy burden for a young child to bear. What an enmity was set up with the rest of the family. And Joseph is man of faith, and we shall see how God refined him, was a member of a deeply dysfunctional family. We'll see in a moment not only family favoritism, jealousy, envy, uh, murderous intentions, sexual temptations, injustice, desperate circumstances, amazing coincidences, and divine deliverances, and the costly experience of forgiveness and reconciliation. Some of you know how deep that goes. We can say the words, we can go through the motions, but to actually feel by God's grace clean and the matter is dealt. And then this amazing thing of how God's blessing to one family, you become tied up with national and international events. I'm going to come back to that because I feel strongly that here we are individually getting right with God uh, and it's grace not only for us, but I dare to believe it's grace for our nation. You know how soap operas, um, and I'm sure some of the writers, let's face it, Andrew Lloyd Webber, came to the story of Joseph. You realize that it was launched, when was it, in uh, 1969, 40 years more on, 500 schools every year perform a production of Joseph, the amazing, enduring heat. And soap opera writers, they must come to Joseph. But remember, the difference between soap operas 
and the Bible story is soap operas are all nature and no grace. And the Bible story is the depths of human nature and the fullness of God's grace. In soap operas, very, very rarely do characters change. In fact, you're yelling sometimes at a book or a screen, don't go there. And you're doing that sometimes with what's happening here. But God's intervening grace again and again shines through. So what are the big themes as we sort of step out on three studies? What are the big themes to be looking for as we go through these sessions? Number one, the hidden hand of God. Uh, it's a classic passage on God's providence, the whole story of Joseph. There's no mention of God in the open verse. He is the absent presence. In fact, from now on, from chapter 38 to 50, God is mentioned in every chapter except chapter 47. But it's clear from the beginning that God is at work in the life story of Joseph. The hand is hidden and the voice is often off stage. And we'll see tomorrow morning in a remarkable passage, chapter 38. And my question to you is, can we live with this hiddenness of God in our own life? In these days of instant miracles and instant prayers and uh, strategies and programs that are going to deliver for the church, can we live walking by faith and not by sight? You know, the, the underlying thing uh, in these verses, and especially if we come into the further chapters, is this phrase, but God was with Joseph. Even when the presence of God doesn't seem to be felt, a felt presence, he is there. And all the time, we know the end from the beginning. That's our advantage. There will be no surprises. There will be surprises and illuminations, as God says, this is the word for you at this moment. But the basic plan of the story is known to all of us. I uh, heard a very powerful sermon preached uh, back in November. I don't know the preacher that well. But I know him well enough to know that he's just about <coughs> surviving in leadership. He's hanging on by his fingernails. And he said out of the brokenness of his situation, which some of us know something about, we need to find a way of holding on to God when to all appearances he has let go of us. And when you have nothing else to hang on to in Christian leadership, hang on to the core. We're called by the mercy of God. Ministry was not your best idea. certainly wasn't a reward for hard work. We didn't choose Jesus. He chose us as his followers and his servants. And the first thing you see in this is this, but God was with Joseph. The second thing is how Joseph is the first time in the Bible, the embodiment of Romans 8.28. God is always working for the good of those who love him. Um, we, as we open chapter 37, see he's 17 years of age. He's God's man. God's found the man he wants. But he's only 17 years of age. And God has a lot to do with this young man. He's going to mature him through suffering. He's going to purge his character through fiery trials. He's going to chasten him through harsh experiences. I, I have to say, when you read, especially Hebrews 12, and God chastens those whom he loves, this is a classic passage on chastening. That God wants to get to work in his gracious discipline on this young man uh, because he wants to 
plan this outcome that he has of blessing a whole nation through this refined character. And note the winding circle of spiritual blessing. This 17-year-old is going to go through some fiery trials over the next 22 years before he actually lands right in the heart of town, the seat of government, as it were, of his day. But what will happen is not just a personal blessing. The Joseph story ultimately is for the good of his brothers, for the good of his father, and for the good of a pagan nation. And that's why I want you at this very moment, even though we don't know how it's going to work out, to be open to God's larger work in your life. I can give you an illustration from the country of Jordan. I can only give it to you in headlines because of time, of the Ephesians 3.20 principle, where a group of evangelical Christians praying in that country, which I think is teaching, not just Lebanon maybe teaching, Egypt could be a pack of cards for the whole Middle East. And a group of praying Christians um, pray on the basis of, Ephesians 3.20, but they don't know what they're praying for. God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And what began as a prayer meeting in the upper room, in a different evangelical group, rolled itself out until we were right there in the presence of the King of Jordan. And some mighty things came out of that Muslim king's heart and some kind acts towards evangelical Christians. God's life. So the grace that he wants to pour into your life is an abundant grace that might want to bless a community, a nation. There may even be international dimensions arising out of this conference because of this rolling story of God blessing an individual and through that blessing a nation. And here's the third thing by way of introduction. It's the obvious one. Joseph's story is part of the bigger plan of salvation. What Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, a shadow of the things to come. You see, that the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus runs through the life of Joseph like a scarlet thread. If you want a commentary on this, just read sometime the, uh, the martyrdom speech by Stephen. Stephen's great martyrdom speech where he shows, quoting Joseph, that a human pattern of human rejection runs through the Old Testament. The rejection of God's chosen deliverance through envy and unbelief of those closest. So what Joseph's brothers did to him by putting him in the pit was exactly what was going to happen to Jesus. And Stephen has the ability on the day that he dies to show that there's a theme running all the way through the Old Testament, culminating in And so we see how, as somebody has said, the Old Testament is a Christian book full of Christ. Every story whispers his name. And you will see that already in the story of Joseph. So by way of introduction, those are the big things to look for. And here's the first theme from chapter 37. God's wisdom is a life shaper. God's found his man, age 17 years of age, and obviously before he was born he knew. But he needs to be refined and purified and prepared fit for purpose. This, it begins by saying, is the account of Jacob. And then it proceeds, in fact, to tell the story of the family of Jacob primarily through the life experiences of Joseph. It is a Bible question, which we needn't go into. Why is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Joseph doesn't get a mention. He doesn't feature hugely in the New Testament. That's because, really, he is the one who comes on the scene, much like John the Baptist, 
and plays his part. And then other people, the glory of God increase, and uh, he decreases. But the next few chapters, more than any other patriarch, we learn more about Joseph than we do about Abraham and Isaac. And uh, here is the story of Joseph. This man could have been shaped by his family tradition. And in order to understand Joseph, you must know his family background. And this is where I think it's going to become uh, fairly personal to some. What forces have shaped and continue to shape your ministry and leadership? Is God in his wisdom and grace the real shaper of your ministry? Uh, Joseph's story is heavy with history. His great-granddad was Abraham, his grandfather was Isaac, and his father was Jacob. There is a burden of tradition on a young man's shoulder. His father, Jacob, was a self-willed opportunist and go-getter. As somebody has said, he was so crooked, Jacob, he could hide behind a corkscrew. <laughs> and he was his mother's favorite. We'll see uh, why history, as it were, repeats itself. And the sins of one generation are visited on another. Rebecca made Jacob her favorite. And uh, Jacob was a clever little schemer, an unscrupulous double diener, and a self-sufficient man. Very early on in his life, as you know, he cheats his brother out of the inheritance. He cheats his father out of the blessing, which was irrevocable. And nothing could change that. So he has to leave home in a hurry. That's chapter 25, and you can read all about that. And behind him, he leaves this trail of mistrust, enmity, and isolation. The amazing thing is, chapter 28, you have this ladder of grace vision from earth to heaven. He's on the run. He's cheated his brother. His brother's act to kill him. And Jacob had every good reason to be on the run. He's lying to his father. Uh, but God's plan is not going to be destroyed by a scheming and stupid mother and son. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will stand. And it's as if in this ladder of grace moment in chapter 28, God is saying to him, you're in a bad place, but I'm still with you. There will be consequences, and like all sin, it has to be uncovered and dealt with, but God hasn't aborted the mission. And you know what happens? He comes and makes for Uncle Laban's home, and Laban is a double cross of par excellence. Jacob meets his match in Laban. Chapter 29, and you need to just note this on the way to understand the Joseph story, the greatest love story of the Old Testament. When Jacob meets Rebekah, when he meets Rachel at the well, it says he, he wept, <coughs> he cried, he kissed her, verse 11 and 29. He kissed her and he cried. He loved this woman deeply. A double-crosser, Uncle Laban, says, work for me. Work for me seven years, and this beautiful daughter of mine can be yours. And 29.17 says Rachel was beautiful, and Leah, her sister, was not so beautiful. And on the wedding night, Laban switches the sisters. And when he wakes up in the morning, he's married to the other sister, not the one he loved. So now he's been swindled, as he swindled his brother. And now it really becomes a if you think your family life is complicated, be encouraged to come and read this one. Mm -hmm. Jacob now has four women 
who bear children to it, two wives and two concubines. He has 11 sons and one daughter. And eventually, after lots of heartache, chapter 30, verse 22, Rachel conceives and bears Joseph. Can you understand why he was the family pet, at least his parents? The father, Jacob, who so loved this woman, Rachel, has lots of other children by other women, but this is his number one. And to his number one, he's born this boy called Joseph. But he's still not cured of his crookedness. Laban, as you know, decides, uh, Jacob decides to get his own back on Laban, so he manipulates the breeding of the sheep so that it brings profit to Jacob and loss to Laban. And when Laban discovers Jacob becomes a man on the run again. He'd had to run from Esau, and he's now on the run again, this time as a man with children, including young Joseph. Terrified of what will happen in chapter 32, he comes, and I think this is a, a turning point for Jacob. It's a life-shaping moment. He has this wrestling match with a man who we know, as we read on in chapter 32, is God himself. And he fights with this man. He wrestles with God. And in fact, I think if you read this carefully, it isn't so much Jacob wrestling with God as God wrestling with Jacob. God is wrestling with Jacob and striving with him to make him the sort of man that he wants him to become. Jacob, you could be and should be this person. That resonates with me. When I look back in my busyness, when I don't give God time and I even come to these occasions, and I'm so busy, I don't feel that God is resting with my spirit in order to say, David, this is the man I want you to be, and the man you could be in my hands. But it is a profound moment for him. When he says in chapter 32 and verse 36, I will not bless you, uh, bless you. I will not let you go unless you bless me. <laughs> Self-reliance hasn't been totally handed out of But there is a spirit of submission. And as you know, he lives from that day on. Jacob maybe has learned his lesson. God is still shaping a life, but his limping will always remind him of his dependence on God. Now, I just give you all that, read it for yourself to realize that young Joseph, age 17, was reared in this family. These are shaping influences on him. The family pet, certainly of his parents, on the run from Granddad Laban. He must have said as a youngster, why didn't we say goodbye to Uncle Laban? And why is Dad frightened of meeting Uncle Esau? And why is Dad walking with a stick, a stick and limping back? A few chapters earlier, uh, Rachel dies. In fact, Jacob is, is never the same again. By the end of our story and our walk with Joseph, there will be some consolation. But there are no great moments. There's no wrestling. There's no calling a place Bethel of Peniel. This great communion with God, it's absolutely silent. He is a, a man who cannot be consoled. He's alone with his grief. I'm dad's favorite, says Joseph, but that makes me the enemy of my brothers. And Joseph, Jacob, continues to be manipulative. He used his son. We know something of this behavior. He says to his son, uh, will you spy on your brothers for me and, and bring me a report? 
And so when it says in the opening chapters that he, he had brought a fa- his father a bad report, I'm not too sure whether Joseph chose <laughs> Jacob putting pressure on the family's favourite. And this set him at odds against the rest of the family. Now I'd say to you at the beginning here, there are far too many negative influences in Joseph's life. And you can see how God in his wisdom has got to get to work to shape this life after his tradition, in his wisdom and grace. When God calls us, we're never the finished product. He always has work to do. All of us here are the product of a home or a a work or an education environment. It may have been good and wholesome. It may have been bad and destructive, but we've been shaped by it. You need to own it. You may have been reared in a loving, Christ-centered, grace-filled, word-based, mission-focused community. But you may have been reared in a church which was loveless, graceless, inward-looking, fractious, and suspicious. That left its mark on you. I know through my pastoral context, people who were disowned by their family, one guy I know, who felt the Lord was calling him into ministry when his um, dad, who wasn't a believer, felt he had been called to uh, an army career, because generation after generation had served the army. I know a family that disinherited a woman because she married the wrong man. I know people who have such strong views still thrust upon them by Christian parents, or the fear of the church, or the terrible heartache of a history of abuse, both physical and sexual. God, in his wisdom, wants to be the sole shaper of our lives. And we have to come and seek his grace and say, Lord, am I being shaped, consciously and unconsciously, by forces that lie in the past, even as they did with Joseph? Um, my father was a pastor, my brother Ian is a pastor, and uh, when my uh, brother, who's younger than me, was um, growing up, he would, um, as young as six or seven, he would write letters. Um, he would write letters to Scotland Yard, as it was then, instead of the cottony old detective notebooks they didn't want. Um, he would write to a football club and say they got the old shirts they didn't want. And one day we came down, and my mum found on the table by the front door, a letter addressed to the Family Planning Association. We're talking about a seven-year-old. <laughs> and so my mother very tactfully comes in at breakfast and uh, says to Ian, uh, is this your, yeah, I the Family Planning Association. Why would you write to the Family Planning Association? Ian said, well, he said, we never know where to go on holiday as a family. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, here's an organization that does it for you. <laughs> I'm the son of a man, says my brother, was, and we have many happy moments. But uh, when I was 10, there was a church split. And half the church left. My father had a physical breakdown. As a 10-year-old, all I remember was my dad being very poorly. And one Sunday, I was in the Sunday school class I loved. And the next Sunday, I wasn't. It was many years later that I discovered what had happened. I also discovered and witnessed very extreme marriage difficulty between my mum and my dad. Uh, my mum died aged 18. 
at 93, and my dad died in his late 60s. And they had a lovely, loving friendship, companionship in later years. But in those early years, I think today, I've never said this to my dad because he's in glory, but when my mum was still alive, I think we agreed today, given the lack of social stigma, even in the church, they would have probably said. I think my brother and I had every reason not to go into Christian ministry. In fact, when I was a young pastor in my first church, I came back to the place where my dad had ministered, and we were invited by a deacon on the other side of the conflict to come and have tea. And his wife took my wife and children down the garden. He held me back. I was in my early 30s, and he just said, we gave him, he said, I want to, from the heart, apologize. He says, you will not know how I have prayed for you two boys. That I pray that you would not be scarred, that your love for Jesus would not be affected, that your love for the church. He said, it's a miracle of grace that you're in the ministry today. And I would say amen. And why do I share this with you? Because that experience of a church split and family conflict, and, and the problem about family conflict in the mass, as you know, that you have to keep the lid on it even more than most families. And keep the ministry going. And the last place you want to be is in the pulpit. You have to be there. So in the early years of my ministry, because of all this conflict is bad, I became a people pleaser. Conflict could never be resolved because conflict simply divided churches. And as a result, I never confronted issues. And I was paranoid about people. What are they plotting? And I had to go through a real purging as a leader. To realize that there are times when you have to manage conflict and differences can be resolved. And there are moments, especially for Christian leaders dealing with church discipline, when to confront. And a leader has to live with people misrepresenting you. You see, you can't manage the news networks of church life. You couldn't manage the news network before Twitter and texting and Facebook and everything else. That, believe it or not, is one of the major social revolutions. This WikiLeaks is a huge social revolution, <laughs> and it's going to have profound implications on political processes. I guarantee that what's happened in Egypt, many of those people gathered until they shut the system down. Not by newspaper, not simply by word of mouth, by this electronic means. And that's true for church life as well. So, a far from perfect family life and a far from perfect experience of church. But I want to testify today that God uses imperfection. That grace, if you own up to it, that you can in fact see God's plan being rolled out. Um, somebody has written this, I am responsible for the person I am, not my mother or my father, but Leo, standing in the need of prayer. The past events of Joseph's life could have been a shaper, but God in his wisdom was shaping his life. And that is the most important. Here's the second thing, the present conflicts that shaped Joseph. This is the hatred of his brothers. They could have shaped his life. Why did his brothers hate him? Well, I'm sure there were three. They were hated, hating because of Jacob's favoritism. Jacob loved Joseph more. We know why, because he so loved Rachel, and this was the son of his old age. And the coat that came as a gift was more than just um, a status 
it marked him out as possibly the man to whom Jacob would leave everything. It was a sign, if you like, of how he would inherit the estate. Secondly, he was hated because of Jacob's confiding. And reports came, and, and Jacob said, will you find out? And these brothers were rough and reckless and dangerous. Jacob didn't trust them, so he used uh, Joseph, as it were, to get into that context. What a context God served Joseph. Immorality, Reuben, uh, one of the sons of Seth, one of the concubines. They were bloodthirsty and uh, violent men. Simeon and Levi, chapter 34, had slaughtered a whole tribe of Shem because their sister Dinah had been disgraced. They took the law into their own hands. It's a miracle of grace that God took this Joseph out of this highly dysfunctional family and shaped him for himself. But thirdly, he was hated because he was God's messenger. This is the dream sequence. Did the dreams come from God? Yes, they did. Uh, was Joseph being um, arrogant in the way he shared them? Does the text say that? The text doesn't say that. There may have been a naive simplicity in the way that he shared these dreams. But I think the text is saying that God, through Joseph, is delivering a revealed word that 22 years later would come true. There would be a barren death, not just of sheaves, but of people. And there would be those who would come, the sun and the moon representing his mother and father, his dead mother, incidentally, and uh, his brothers. And this was God saying, this is going to happen. They didn't know the details of how he'd be elevated to prime minister in the land. But God was delivering his revelation through Joseph. And I think he was hated because he was the bearer of the message. There is such a thing as the loneliness of the preacher alone with the burden of the word. There have been one or two, uh, more than one or two moments in my life where at the end of the Lord's Day, I have uh, sat in the front of the church, in the almost empty church, and I have wept for the hardness of people. I've had some outstanding companions. God never leaves you alone in ministry if you seek it. A, boy, a friend from boyhood years was Roy Hessian. If you've never read his uh, book, The Calvary Road, I commend it. It's still in print. Um, I remember Roy, who was a member of my fellowship in one of the places I ministered, saying to me, David, the answer is never it. It's always it. One of my elders, John, uh, came and sat next to me when I just felt um, so alone. I I felt I'd been faithful to a revelation regarding a prayer And not even leaders had understood this. If you haven't looked at it recently, don't look at it now, but sometimes turn to 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7. These probably are the, the final uh, reflections of Paul in his prison cell and the, the dejection, the loneliness, the desolation. At my defense, nobody stood by my side but God. One of our churches in South London was bombed in the war, Chatsworth. And, and when it was rebuilt, the architect, a Christian, had a vision for making a, um, a huge piece of wood that came out as if in a hand to make the, the left. And what he wanted to see was the arm of God, and in the palm of the hand of God stood the preacher. 
That's the image of 2 Timothy 4 and 17. But just as God was with Joseph, as he gave this revelation as a 17-year-old, God will be with you as you reveal that which he has spoken to you. Then you have the, the wonderful, uh, we've not only seen the past experiences that shaped him and the present conflicts which could have shaped him, blown him off course. But then you have the particular danger. This is the faithful journey where God's wisdom um, was shaping him. First of all, there is the, uh, the total stranger who suddenly appears. Shechem, by the way, is about four days' journey. <clears throat> so from verse 13, he's leaving for a three or four days' walk, and it's dangerous territory. This is the territory where uh, previously his brother Simeon and Levi had carried out the massacre two years previously. So he could have got lost, but providentially God provides this stranger uh, to guide him. He's got to go another 20 miles north to a place called Dothan. This stranger in the middle of nowhere says, I heard them say that so they were going. That's what we call from Psalm 139, God's good government of our lives. On our journeys. A few years ago, I was travelling by train from Newton Abbott to Paddington, and I happened to be reading the newly published book of Elaine's story, What's Right About Feminism. As I pulled in to Paddington, the guy sitting next to me said, can I take details of the book I've been reading over your shoulder for the past two hours? He said, my wife is into feminism, it's destroying our family, but I sense that this woman is saying good things, which I need to hear. I think my wife needs to hear as well. I thought that was a providence on the journey. I was ministering up in Yorkshire, and a couple introduced themselves at the end of the service, and I said, as I often do, how did you become Christians? Then we were two teachers living together, and we decided to take time out to travel the world. We got as far as India, took a drain journey, which should have lasted a few hours, but it went on for many hours. In the character was an Indian Christian. And that Indian Christian working for Youth for Christ witnessed to us for the first time we heard the news about Jesus Christ. We didn't kneel on the carriage door then and there. We carried on our journey, and it was in Melbourne that we bumped into another group of Christians, and we started to stay there for a fortnight. And in Melbourne, we gave our hearts to the Lord Jesus, who we heard about on that train with that Indian Christian. We don't know his name. We've never, never met him before or since that day. We only wish that he knew the influence that he had. God's Providence is here in the life of Joseph. <coughs> we walk by faith through the ordinary days of life and should expect. In the Acts of the Apostles, God gives specific addresses. He says to Ananias, go to the street called Straight. He says to Philip, I want you to go down from the road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho. We need to be awakened in that way, that when God is shaping our lives in the present, whatever awakes God's providence is working there. And then, of course, there is the jealous brothers. Here comes the dreamer, the lord of the dreams. If the coat made them hate Joseph, the dreams were the last straw. And the terrible power of envy. It isn't totally dead. Ego and envy are not dead in the life of the Jew. Hatred is a madness of the spirit which corrupts judgment. When you look at good people and think, why are they saying this? Why are they voting this way? To be filled with envy. Envy sets out to hurt people. 
You not only resent the blessing that someone has received, you end up hating the person who has the blessing. That's what's at work here. <coughs> so they kill him, throw him into the pit. There are dozens of these pits. You know, Jeremiah spoke about the broken cisterns that didn't hold water. Jeremiah 2.13. Well, this is one of those. Bottle shape. Narrow entrance. And then it broadened out as you went down. Hewing out of the rock. Impossible to escape from. If you fell in, you would starve to death. Reuben's half-hearted attempt, verse 21, is a sign of weak leadership. He was too cowardly to take a stand. He should have said, over my dead body. But instead, he said, well, let's not take his life. And he intended to return. He walks away when he gets back, the deed is done. And we know from his testimony in chapter 42 that he actually rebukes the brothers, that the real rebuke is for Reuben. You know why he was going softly? Because he didn't want to fall out with anybody. He'd already done a terrible deed in sleeping with his father's confidence. The three rules of courage for the Christian leader. Number one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of people. Rule number two, God simply asks you to speak the words he gives you to speak. Jesus did no more. And rule number three, don't worry about day two. When God calls for a cleansing of the temple so that his holy fire is brought in to purify and tables prayerfully, wisely, in concert with others, has to be turned over. Courageous leaders don't worry about day two. They don't worry about the consequences. When God's judgment is visited upon a Christian community through holy leaders, holy committed to him, prayerfully, wisely saying this is the most wholesome thing to do in this earth. Not your concern to worry about consequences. But Reuben didn't enter into that process. Just ponder on verses 23 and 24, because it's going to be important at the end of the story. All the hatred that rains down on Joseph. They strip him of that hated coat. They throw him in the pit. They callously have a meal. He could probably hear the laughter and the mocking. 21 times the word brother appears in this chapter. There's nothing brother in here. And later the brothers would tell you what really happened, Genesis 42. We saw his distress of soul when he begged us, and we didn't listen. There's no way I can reproduce to you this terrible moment, but it's a terrible moment that will scar all of you. And then the passing traders, the, they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, resident of our Saviour's life. And he's now taken in chains to Egypt, and his brothers probably thought they would never see him again when he disappeared over the horizon. They deceived their father, Jacob, you ever been in a family where there's been deceit and lies and every time there's a family gathering, people are just hoping and praying. Nobody, especially if they've been drinking, might spill the story. They bring out the bloodstained coat and they don't say anything. Jacob simply draws his own conclusion. A wild animal has devoured my son. And as the chapter closes, he makes up his mind to wear black for the rest of his life. He will go down to the grave in mourning. A man who has wrestled with God now clings to his maker in his grief. 
So as we close this session, I suppose my question to you is this. Um, who's shaping you in this? Have you been shaped by a family culture, a past or present experience? Have you been shaped by a family mess? I'm going to see if the next chapters unfold that nobody is disqualified from God's service because you've been bound up in a family mess. And the last picture we have of Joseph for the moment is the great phrase, God is with him. Joseph in the pit, Joseph in chains. The sheer helplessness of God's servant, young man that he is, in the pit, in chains, helpless to do anything about his destiny. And I can only think of one passage to give you, to meditate on for your own ministry. It's that picture of helplessness which is drawn for us in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. You see, leadership is not having all the answers. Leadership actually is a life without it. We're likened, as you know, to jars of clay in which the treasure of the gospel is. Why has God made us vulnerable? Why has he made us that we feel anxiety and we feel grief and we worry and there's fear and emotion that we can't take? Well, verse 7 tells you. We have the treasure in the jar of clay so that the all-surpassing power is seen to come from God, not from us. God has planned it this way. <coughs> He's planned it this way that we should be vulnerable. As vulnerable as I bought last October in Jericho, a little 50p clay pot. And if I put my grandmother's 1,000 pound earring in that clay pot, but then drop the pot, the pot goes the earring state. It's the treasure that cannot be violated. It's the pot that is so easily broken because we are fragile. And these cutting edge phrases that Paul uses, he talks about the hard-pressed leader, the perplexed leader, the persecuted, the physically and emotionally beaten leader. These are experiences in the body. There are times when we feel hard-pressed. We feel the pit of being hard-pressed. We feel the chains of being perplexed. The pit of persecution. Not simply from non-Christians, but from friends. Paul had that experience. Jesus had that experience. Why should we be any less than that? In the Christian ministry, we will have these experiences, like Joseph, of total helplessness. But listen to what these verses are saying. We live to tell the story. Because the indestructible treasure of the resurrection life of Jesus is buried in my vulnerable life, I can now interpret my story through this story. God planned it then. We always, verse 10, carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus. The dying moment. I'm not going to arise out of this pit. I will never have these chains off my arms. This is my destiny. <laughs> so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. Joseph, hang on. There is a resurrection moment coming. God has planned it. You will be hard-pressed, dying moment, but you need never be crushed. 
You might be perplexed, dying moaned in the pit, but never to the point of despair. You may be persecuted, dying moaned, but God will never abandon you. You may be struck down, but you will not be destroyed, because your life is hidden with Christ. So as we say goodbye to Joseph, and maybe hello to ourselves, vulnerable leaders, without all the answers, let me remind you, God, in his wisdom, Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.